Hey guys, I'm Chelsea. And I'm Jessica. And this is The Hand That Feeds Us. Guys, we're finally doing it. We're finally doing an episode on fermented foods. <laughs> Let's do it. it. Yeah, we're like over 10 episodes in and we're just now like, oh yeah, by the way, the reason we got into all of this was, you know, XYZ sourdough mostly for both of us. But I this was such an interesting topic and I feel like there's a lot to digest and talk about. Um, so I'll do my best. Keep me on topic, Jessica. Um, oh, will do. That's what I'm here for. Yes, I need it really back in. So today we're going to talk about fermented foods, what they are, where they come from, and then what they do for us. We'll break the process of fermentation down in both nature and industrial cases. We'll talk about our own experiences with fermentation and why you should or shouldn't try this at home. So <laughs> fermented foods, you've all heard of these. Kombucha, yogurt, aged raw cheeses, sauerkraut, pickles, miso, tempeh, natto, kimchi, apple cider vinegar, some wine, sourdough bread, kefir, etc. There's tons of them. Fermented foods are everywhere and they've been around a really, really, really long time. Um, fermented foods are defined as foods or beverages produced through controlled microbial growth and the conversion of food components through enzymatic action. Essentially, anything can be fermented, like meat, fish, dairy, vegetables, soybeans, legumes, cereals, and fruits. Um, and there's a lot of different ways we can do fermentation, but I'll get to that. Historically, fermentation, I think to me, when I think about this, I think it was probably, it occurred spontaneously in nature because like this is way back thousands of years ago. Like we, there's no way we had an understanding of what we were doing. Um, and it was yeah, actually, no bacteria was a thing. <laughs> yeah. We were just like, oh, we need to eat. You know, I'm going to leave this here for X amount of time and then I'm going to go to eat it again. Um, and it's going to taste totally different. It's going to have a different texture, a different smell to it. And I'm sure initially they probably got really sick from things that weren't properly fermented, which, you know, thank you for your trial and error, early ancestors. Um, but somewhere along the way, we became really wise to this process and we were like, wait a second. If we control this in a certain way, we can actually provide ourselves and produce ourselves, not produce ourselves. We can provide ourselves with a lot of preserved foods, um, which is huge. You know, you don't have to go out and hunt and forage every second of every day. You can collect things on a mass scale, preserve it, and, you know, way down the line, find out, oh, actually, this was really, really good for us. So, um, yeah, there's tons of health benefits to this. Well, let me let me strike that for a second. It's suggested that there are tons <laughs> of health benefits for this. <laughs> Let me guess. Research needs to be done further. <laughs> yes. We do not have enough. Like everything. It's so annoying. And I'm like, seriously, guys, this has been around for thousands of years. This is all we should be researching. Okay. I, I mean, the amount of things we have researched that probably could have waited, it's fine. But I guess, like I said, this was initially done for food preservation. So they probably were just like, okay, whatever. Our food can stay good for longer what a benefit rather than being like, oh, this is good for my gut microbiome, which now is why we're all like super hype about it. And it's very trendy. Um, but the suggested health benefits of fermented foods are primarily touted for 
like I just mentioned, your healthy gut microbiome and also source of antioxidants. So antioxidants help prevent cell damage in the body. And a healthy gut microbiome is inside your stomach or your intestines, your whole GI tract. There's all these happy little bacteria that live in there to help all of the digestive process through our body. So helps with all kinds of different things. And we will talk more about that later too. But like I said, more research is needed to be done to, you know, really prove that that's true. So now fermentation, not just preservation and health, also can be used to enhance taste and texture with some foods, which this blew my mind. Olives are fermented food. Never knew that. I'm like, am I am I living in some other world? I thought olives were olives, but oh yeah, actually, you're right. I just thought they were like a canned food. Yeah, no, they're like straight up fermented. I was like, wait, what? There's like they're like way apparently they're actually inedible without fermentation. So you know, somewhere, somewhere, somebody along the way was like, oh, I can't eat these things hanging off of this tree. Let me per- put them in this jar with. Mm-hmm. salt brine or whatever, wait a certain amount of time and then they become edible to me. So really interesting. <laughs> apparently they're like yeah. super bitter. Yeah. Apparently they're super bitter and difficult to digest when they're not fermented. So wild, which also will bring us to another point later about the importance of fermentation for lots of foods. So, but yeah, f- fermented foods are also super varied because there's so many different variables in the fermentation process that can alter the final product. Like the little tiny microorganisms in there doing their thing. And then also, you know, the nutritional ingredients of the fermentation itself could be different based on how it's fermented. And then the environmental conditions can change it a lot, which you and I have learned through our process of sourdoughing. Um, You know, they like a certain temperature, a warm temperature, but if it gets too warm, it can kill the bacteria um, or let, you know, bad bacteria thrive so that the good bacteria can't fight against it. I mean, it's a really major balance. Um, but this process alone, though it's varied, gives rise to thousands and thousands of different types of fermentation strains. So really, really cool. Two different types of methods through which foods can be fermented. And this is the part that I really wanted to dig into when going into this episode, because I'm like, okay, so you and I have learned how to do this whole sourdough thing at home. I mean, I'm still terrible at it. I'm still, I'm like, it's starting to get a little bit bubblier, but like, it's been the most humbling experience. I considered myself to be like pretty good at cooking and baking. And I was like, this, I got this. Mm-hmm. No, I'm like real bad at it, but it's getting better. And like, don't be discouraged starting either because my first four sourdough starters molded before I made it to like a week before they got to the point you could actually use them. I'd like, there was one, I swear, I like less than 24 hours later, maybe I was paranoid, but I was like, there are pink streaks in this. This is definitely, (laughs) I remember this. And I remember like I had, I had killed one starter and then I was like, okay, now I'm getting the hang of it. And I started pulling it together and actually my starter turns one this February. So really exciting. (laughs) But I remember you being like, why does mine keep dying? And I was like, Jessica, what is happening over there? But you're right. It's so hard. My hard thing was getting it to bubble. I mean, I can mm-hmm. keep it unmolded, um, but like, gosh, man, getting it like really bubbly and quote yeah. unquote active, like those happy little bacteria, making sure they were well fed. I'm like, you guys are so stubborn. I need you to be happy and bubbly or else my bread is going to be flat, which I've eaten many of brick now that I've you know gotten into sourdough. So 
yeah, the fermentation process is extraordinarily humbling. Like you said, it's like... (laughs) Oh my gosh. And all of them are so different too. Like all of the fermented products, like, you know, sourdough, sauerkraut, kefir, you've been making yogurt. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, everything's like completely different. So wild. But there are two main methods, like I mentioned, through which these foods are fermented. Um, One of them is naturally. And one of them is in the addition, using the addition of a starter culture. So naturally or referred to as wild or spontaneous ferment is where the little microorganisms that are present naturally in a raw food or in an, uh, an environment, unaltered environment, um, can, you know, activate and thrive and create their own happy little bacteria, good bacteria, rich environment. So examples like this of a uh, wild ferment would be sauerkraut, kimchi, or like fermented soy products like miso. And then the other method of fermentation through a starter culture, they're also called culture-dependent ferments. An example of this would be like kefir, kombucha, or natto, which I hadn't heard of until this, which is so ignorant of me to say, but looks delicious. Um, And this method is through what you and I have used with sourdough, which is where they use what they actually call backslopping, which sounds kind of (laughs) gross. A small bit of like a previous fermented batch of food is used to add to a new raw ingredient. So that's where you get the word like a starter. So that's your live, active, happy, fermented environment. You take a little scoop of that and then you add it to your like raw flour or whatever. It eats, it eats, it eats it, grows and grows and grows and creates another healthy fermented environment. So really interesting. Um, And then the second one that I just talked about that culture dependent ferment can also be broken down into two categories. And this is important because this got really confusing for me. But starters that can be used to initiate fermentation can either be done through backslopping, like I just mentioned, which Jessica and I have been practicing in our kitchens, or through a selected commercial starter that standardizes the final product for you. So it keeps things consistent for distribution. We'll talk more about this in a minute. You know, we like to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's important to talk about while we're talking about this topic of differences between natural and wild or culture-dependent ferments. Um, why, why is that? Why does that matter? Can't you just like ferment something? Well, no, that's not true. Um, wild fermentation includes the ability to capture a wide variety of microorganisms present in the environment, and it leads to a more diverse and complex flavor. So if you eat our sourdough, it's going to taste a little bit more sour. It's going to have more of that like richness to it um, versus, you know, if you taste something that's more controlled and more specifically cultivated for its final product will not have that same lasting effect. And that's just because they're trying to target a certain audience. Um, But this natural fermentation, it's way more accessible. It's way less expensive. You can do it yourself. So don't dismiss it just because it can be a little riskier based on how much you're paying attention (laughs) and also your skill level, which you can cultivate over time, people. This is true. Um. And with that said, I need to bring up my sauerkraut experience. I created sauerkraut. This was like the second thing I did. I was like, oh, I'm good. I'm getting sourdough down. Cool. Let me create some sauerkraut. Um, Sauerkraut is really, really fun and really easy. And honestly, I think I should have started with that first, personally. Mm -hmm. Um, It's literally a head of cabbage. (laughs) Based on how big that head of cabbage is, a couple tablespoons of salt, 
and then like a lot of love and labor. You'd literally chop it up, throw it in a bowl with some salt and you massage it for like 10, 20 minutes and then it creates sauerkraut, which is crazy. Excuse me, actually doesn't create it. It creates the contents that will thereby make sauerkraut. Like a week later or how long was it? I forget. I've only tried once. I think it was a week. Uh, I think I got a little excited and tasted mine after like four or five days and I was like, "Mm, this isn't great. It needs a little bit more of a, you know, pungent punch to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think after like mine was like seven to 10 days, I was like, okay, cool. I was very nervous eating it. (laughs) Yeah. The the ferments are nerve wracking because you're just like, oh gosh. Or like, I think I get like overly uh, cautious too. And I'll be like, is that mold? Is it mold? And if I see anything, like even the stuff that they're like, oh, it's nothing. Scrape it off. I'm like, eh, I should probably throw it away. Don't want to chance it. <laughs> I know. And I, I always take like a little tiny bite the first time I try, like especially my sauerkraut, because I mean, that is that is the drawback of wild fermentation. Like, I mean, you really don't know how it's going to turn out. You're kind of taking that risk because you're not buying some like standardized something or another that was made in like an insured way that you're not going to get sick. Um, Plus, like, it's kind of hard sometimes to recognize what is and isn't mold when like Mm -hmm. the natural fermentation process creates kind of a cloud anyway. Like it's it's not pretty. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And it's plus it's different. Like every single time you make it, like the first time I made sauerkraut, it was like the best thing I've ever had in my life. And the second time I was like, why is this not as good? It like created almost a different color inside. We didn't get sick. Um, it was like very gut healthy, but I was like, I don't know. It's not the same. So maybe it was something with a cabbage too. Cause like, especially when you're not like growing your own, you don't know, like it might have completely different, like natural bacteria colonizing it or I actually didn't even think about that. You're right. That's probably what it was because I don't know if I bought like organic or if I bought from the same place or like even if that cabbage came from a different place where it had like different needs. Like you said, like that environment actually matters a lot, especially with sourdough too. Like if my Mm -hmm. kitchen this time of year isn't as warm as I need it to be, I am not going to get a loaf of sourdough bread. I mean, oh, yeah. When I was trying to do my starter in Virginia, I like could not get it to bubble. But then as soon as I got to Hawaii and like put it in like the sunny window and it's like kind of hot in our house, it was just started bubbling all of a sudden with me not doing anything different. I need to try the sunny window. Okay. <laughs> because I was like, people were like, oh, just stick it in your oven. Well, that almost caught fire one day. I had, had a loaf of bread poof proofing in the oven and my husband came home and was preheating it you know, for dinner and something started smelling like it was burning. It was the towel on top of my, oh my you know, now dead loaf of bread. So yeah, I actually, I'll have to do that. But I think it's really cool. It kind of leads to this like intuitive experience where you have to look at what you're making, pay attention to it and be like, okay, this is what it needs. It's kind of like raising plants and stuff. It's like, oh, which this I also lo- struggle with. <laughs> intuition's hard because we've been taught for so long not to listen to it you know like for so long I think our entire lives as like millennials they've been like oh don't worry we'll make it for you and so it's like you know getting your first plant and raising it you're like oh is it too much water is it not enough water is it too much sun is it not enough sun like we just don't know how to do these things and it's the same thing with fermented foods like I should know how to do this but it's been removed. It's been taken and put up on a shelf, made for me. Um, and that's not as good. It's just not as good. And like I said, we'll get there. But 
yeah, really crazy. Starters used to initiate fermentation, like we said, can either be natural or select commercial starters. Um, and an example of this versus like Jessica and I back slopping our sourdough in the kitchen would be like if you go and buy one of those packages of like dried active yeast to make bread. That's like a standardized commercial starter. Um which isn't necessarily fermented, but can be used to activate the fermentation process. So, um, and they do that because, you know, every loaf of bread you ever make from that little package of yeast is going to be the same. And, or like, you know, if you're going to use it to make your own homemade, whatever beer, do you use that for kombucha? I don't know. I think it's brewers. Oh, and kombucha? No. So you have this thing called a mother and it has like, it's like this symbiotic, like bacteria yeast, um, thing it's real gnarly looking and I would get real paranoid with that one about like is that mold because like if you've seen a mother it's there's a lot going on there it's real Mm -hmm. real foul looking um so (laughs) just at baseline (laughs) it's always fun to drink it when you're drinking your kombucha too you're like oh am I supposed to have this part it's also floating in apple cider vinegar too like -hmm. when you buy the unfiltered raw organic apple cider vinegar you're like oh something's floating around in there versus like, you know, something that's been processed, pasteurized, whatever. It's like just perfectly beautifully clear, like apple juice would be. But yeah, I would get like an accidental mouthful of like mother if I didn't strain it when I was bottling it. I'm just like, oh, oh my gosh. It's like, oh, it's like real nasty. But I mean, but that's the good part. Yeah. I mean, and you can like, they have like recipes to cook with it and stuff. And I'm just like, I want to hurl actually just thinking about that because I, w- I will not be doing that. But <laughs> Oh my gosh. You just got to take a quick shot of it, you know, just down the hatch um, for those health benefits. Because that little SCOBY, as you mentioned, I feel like is the part that like, you know, is so good and good for your happy little gut if you don't drink it. But it is gross. I mean, it's gross. You have to get over that texture factor. But we've become soft, man. People back in the day when they first started fermenting stuff, like they just went for it, you know? (laughs) We got to, we got to get more brave. Anyway. All of this made me super curious about natural versus commercial fermentation methods. And I was like, okay, so you're telling me, oh, we can do all this for you. We can, you know, make this process easier and safer and simpler and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, well, what's the difference though? You know, if somebody does something versus me doing it myself, there's got to be a change there. Um, And so other than the standardization and the accessibility, what is the nutrient density and the resulting health benefits? Um, This brought me to my thought where I was like, okay, you know how all the time people talk about, oh, I'm lactose intolerant, but I can drink raw milk and kefir Mm -hmm. rather than like pasteurized milks and yogurts or people who are like, oh, I'm gluten intolerant, because like, you know, rapid yeast processing doesn't allow for the full breakdown of those indigestible, indigestible compounds, but can like eat sourdough bread. Um, I'm like, okay, so is there anything to that? And then I went mm-hmm. way down a rabbit hole as always. So really got into understanding what it is that makes these foods good for us, um, which I'll break down a little bit too, but also like, what is, what is that difference? There is a huge difference. And I don't think there is enough evidence not to suggest it. I mean, it does suggest that, you know, when you make it yourself, it's actually can be so much more beneficial than if you buy it off of a shelf, but it's that they don't really want us to know that. And I'll tell you what I mean by that later too. Um, but I firsthand witnessed this with my health journey. Like I was becoming lactose intolerant, like had all these like super weird side effects. Like I had, I thought a pretty good diet, but 
now looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, it was no wonder I felt insane. But I, you know, I was like, oh, I'm healthy and I'm working out and I'm eating X, Y, Z and blah, blah, blah. I had like zero healthy gut bacteria, like zero. I did not have a singular fermented food in my entire diet. And like everything I was eating was like, you know, pre-made or like if it wasn't pre-made, it like was just in its raw form, which you can eat, but there's a reason why things ferment naturally in nature. So as with all other things that call out standardized approaches, there's limited studies out there. However, I found some. Um, (laughs) One of them um, discusses like the differences in the bacterial profiles of natural and then it calls it inoculated fermentation of vegetables, which is standardized. Um, And this study found that the diversity of bacteria in naturally fermented vegetables was far more enriched and biodiverse than that of a standardized fermentation. Um, They measured like the total number of bacteria between the two and the bacteria in the group that was standardized was higher, but it was specific strains of bacteria that had likely been added by them to make it healthy. So here you have something that's super naturally produced and, you know, fermented through nature. It really biodiverse has all of these different strains of all these different things. And then you have something that's made with a standardized approach that's compared to it. And it has more of certain bacteria that they claim is like the best of the best, but it doesn't have that wide range that, mm-hmm. you know, your gut microbiome needs where it, it needs to be diverse. It needs to have all of these contributions to it to make it truly healthy. Um, But, you know, the study was like, well, standardized cultures can shorten the time of the fermentation cycle. They can reduce nitrite content, which I was like, why are you even why are you even bringing that about? Um, And then provide a theoretical basis for the standardized production of traditional fermented vegetables. So they're like, even though, you know, we just told you exactly why it's not quite as good. This is better because we can standardize it. And also, why bring nitrites into this? We were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. I'm like, mm-hmm. is that like a fear monger word they're trying to put in there? Because like nitrites are hot right now. You like don't want those added to your like sausages and other fermented meats and stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'd be curious to know like how much like your ha- like what's the difference? Is it like statistically significant between like what's in the homemade versus the store-bought and then also, like, are we talking about the same thing as, like, with, you know, like, deli meat now? I feel like it's on everything, like, nitrate-free. Um, so I don't know if that's the same thing because I know that's nit- – nitrates, I feel like they've associated with, like, was it stomach cancer or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, oh, well, we don't want that. But are we talking about the same thing in this article? You said it wasn't super clear, right? No, not super clear, like everything else. It just like kind of flaunted it at the end. And I was like, oh, that's super weird. It mentions it a little bit throughout, but it's so much jargon that it's hard for, you know, somebody who's just trying to find what's good and bad to eat to really understand. Um, But basically, it just like said, like this standardized process reduced the time of fermentation, which thereby reduced the nitrate content. So it kind of suggested to me that nitrate is something that's naturally occurring in nature, like a lot of things, like ethanol, you know, through the process of fermentation. Um, But, you know, they were kind of like, oh, okay, so, you know, when we standardize this approach, we have less of that present than if it's naturally, like, fermented. And then I was like, okay, but, like, how much is bad for me? Like, I Mm -hmm. feel like it kind of sounds like a little bit is necessary. Like, yes, can it be bad? Of course it can. 
like alcohol, like can it be bad? Of course it can, but I definitely think there's a dose to poison ratio here and it didn't really mention it. So that was just kind of like a moment where I was like, I feel like you're trying to sway me one way by dropping like a word that normally would make me nervous. But I feel like I want to do a little bit more research on that and see if there's like, I don't know, because it, it they were very unclear about it and I couldn't find a lot of studies on it either. So like yeah. everything. <laughs> That's always the most frustrating thing doing this research. It's like, okay, I have this question that I feel like I should definitely be able to find an answer for because somebody has to have thought of this and then there's nothing. You're like, okay, cool. Yeah. Like no one knows. I was like, okay, great. (laughs) Thanks guys. (laughs) It's like, so anyway, but uh, I'm going to take a side tangent moment for a second because this also like led me down this like rabbit hole where it was like, Okay, like you're shortening a fermentation time, but like fermentation is a process of like all these little like buddy bacteria working together to create like this really healthy environment. And I think something super trendy today that people throw out there is probiotics. Like Mm -hmm. everybody's heard of probiotics. They're like, oh, are you taking a daily probiotic? And I'm like, like, what does that even mean? You know what I mean? Like probiotics are like obviously these little bacteria um, like I, like I've been mentioning, been mentioning before, and they're the ones that are suggested to make these foods so good for us. Um, but like a lot of probiotics today, kind of like that process I was just talking about are being taken and standardized and they're like put in a capsule and like thrown on a shelf. And I'm like, wait, the fermentation process is supposed to be this very specific process. How are you isolating those things and making them consumer friendly for people to just straight up buy off of the shelf? And some of them too are like, oh, shelf stable and dry. And some of them were like, needs to be refrigerated. And I'm like, okay, how are we regulating all of this? And what is a probiotic? Mm -hmm. So I I did look into that, you know, (laughs) um, uh, probiotics are good for us. Um, strains are always different. Like we mentioned before, because fermentation is really hard to standardize unless you do it in a very strict and specific way. And there's a lot of limited research for probiotics like there is for the entirety of the fermentation process. Um, But in order to make these bacteria available at home on a commercial level and to give you enough of them um, in a diverse way, because as we mentioned before, the standardized process limits that they needed to industrialize this process and make them more shelf stable. So probiotics like from a foundational standpoint, are live microorganisms that are intended to have health benefits when consumed or applied to the body. They can be found in yogurt and other fermented foods, but yogurt's like a really big one, especially Greek yogurt. A lot of the times if you rotate it around, it's like contains. And then like the two really important ones are like lactobacillus and then, um, oh, there's one more, uh, bifidobacterium big fancy words, but those are like the two (laughs) big ones that they'll tout and they're really good for you. Um, yeah, like you can get them there. You can also buy them in beauty products. Like some, some brands are like, Oh, contains probiotics for your skin. And I'm like, how is that even possible? Like I thought they needed like a really specific environment, but you can buy like base lotions that have like probiotics in them. I don't know. Oh, I I hadn't seen that. That's wild. Yeah, I actually saw it like the other day. I was on like website and they were like contains like probiotics, da 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 da. And I was like, topically, I thought this was like a capsule. I could see it because you know, like with acne, they'll sometimes like give people uh, low dose antibiotics because I guess the thought is like the bacteria that are on your face and like colonizing your body. Because you know we're basically giant little like walking petri dishes. Um, so I mean, I I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I mean you're right and. 
probiotics, like, I, I mean, that makes sense. I just, I remember reading like when I was going through my, like my whole hormone balancing acne battle and even still like, you know, it's a, it's a lifelong battle. I remember reading like, oh, probiotics, take a probiotic. It never actually suggested orally. It was like, you know, take a probiotic. And I'm like, oh, actually, now that you're saying this, I guess you could take it topically too, because it's just the way it's interacting with that bacteria on your skin. So interesting. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, other than that, they can be found in like dietary supplements. Like we just mentioned, you can take it orally. Um, so there's lots of different ways you can get it. And people like to think of bacteria and microorganisms as harmful, but these good bacteria are actually really, really helpful. They help you digest food, destroy disease causing cells, produce vitamins. Um, and actually a lot of the probiotics that we take and ingest are really similar to things that are already present in our bodies. So you're kind of just like feeding something that your body already has and needs more of. Um, but it does so much. It suggests to do so much, like <laughs> help maintain a healthy community of microorganisms in your body. Um, it produces other things too. So it, it helps like all the processes in your body to produce other things to give you health benefits. Um, there's evidence to suggest it can influence your body's immunity. Um, yeah, really interesting. But I was like, okay, probiotics. So I want to go buy one. What does that look like? Well, probiotics are measured in CFUs, which are colony forming units. And I guess that's just like the number of viable cells inside that product. Um, so it it might look impressive when one of them says, oh, has a billion or more CFUs on the bottle, blah, 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 blah. They can They can estimate that when they look at it based on the volume of happy little bacteria present in whatever serving size they're giving you, okay? But if you go and find a bottle that's like has 270 billion CFUs, there is no standard testing to verify that. Like it doesn't mm -hmm. exist. They, they can't measure that. They're just throwing a number out because the person next to them on the shelf is like, oh, 260. And they're like, oh, 270. It's not a real thing. You know, there's no <laughs> way to measure that. So marketing ploy, everyone. But that, I mean, it's still confusing. You're like, okay, so <laughs> what does that mean? Like, how do I, how do I get the right probiotic in order to get the health benefits that we're suggesting that they have. Um, it's kind of hard because also a lot of them like, okay, the capsule you were telling me, it's like, oh, 290 billion CFUs. Well, I can't measure that. Okay. So then I'll go and buy like a bottle of kombucha. Well, that kombucha was bottled, what, two, three weeks ago, sat on a shelf. A lot of those bacteria died while it was sitting in there. You know, it was refrigerated. It didn't have the, it was preserved and it, it's safe for you to consume, but it doesn't have the same like happy, healthy little bacteria inside as it did before. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously like the benefits of probiotics aren't clear, even though there's a good deal of studies to suggest that they're good for you. And also the type of probiotics that should be suggested for us to take isn't really clear also, which is kind of annoying. There's actually like minimal regulations on probiotics in the United States, um, which blew my mind, but also didn't surprise me at all. <laughs> the lack of like regulation on um, like supplements in general has always been kind of surprising to me. Yeah. And based on like the product's intended use, the FDA can regulate it as like a dietary supplement, an ingredient or a drug. Like, but mm -hmm. why? And most of them are sold as a dietary a dietary supplement, which do not require FDA approval before they're marketed. Um, so a lot of them are just like sitting on the shelf, like making claims and 
saying whatever they want to say because it's not it's not a regulated thing. I will say no. when I was looking at taking a probiotic, I remember being told that there's a difference between like a live spore and an, like a, a just a regular probiotic. So that's kind of what I went towards. And now reading all this, I'm like, okay, but still like how do I trust that that's true? I mean, I take a probiotic, especially on days where I don't eat a well-balanced meal or I've like not had a lot of fermented foods in that day, which is super common. But I'm like, still, I don't even know if the probiotic I'm taking is like actually doing what it says it's supposed to be doing. So. Yeah. I tried one like super briefly. Um, I did like the Mary Ruth's one. Oh, I mean, yeah. Nothing. I mean, I don't know. I didn't feel like anything changed. Maybe I didn't take it long enough. I got a little freaked out. One, because I was trying the liquid vitamins for better absorption and there was, and I was doing like the iron one with it, which mm. we're going to, we're going to go down that rabbit hole for a second. And it just, it tasted so foul and like, I just didn't like it. Um, and then I also got just kind of like turned off to the whole experience. Cause I had, like I said, I was doing the iron supplement and luckily I went to the dentist, like, I don't know, probably like two weeks after I had started doing it. And I had it clearly, I need to look at my tongue more, I guess. Cause they're like, Oh, have you been taking a iron supplement? And I was like, yeah, why? They're like, Oh, your tongue is like black. And they're like, it can stain your teeth. And we're already seeing like iron deposits on your teeth. We can scrape it off. But like, if you continue with a liquid iron supplement, you can end up with like staining of your teeth. And I was like, absolutely not. It's like, it freaked me out. And I was like, no, we're not. I don't know. I, my iron is always fine. Like I should not have even, but I was like trying to have like something similar to like the prenatal I had taken before. Cause I was trying to find a substitute. So I'm like, well, my prenatal has it in it. Like we'll make sure like, right now. Oh my God. So that all turned me off. And I was just like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. It's so confusing, but like, <laughs> okay, first off, I'm glad you found that out and that you went to the dentist because how devastating. Like I, I, I highly doubt there was a tag on there that was like, Hey, by the way, if you keep taking this, your teeth are going to turn black. Like, <laughs> No. Yes. I had never heard like, you know, and maybe I should have done more research. Well, obviously I should have, but it never even occurred to me that like, Oh, if I switch to liquid vitamins instead of like pills, it'll like stain my teeth. So heads up people, liquid iron can deposit all up in your mouth. The, the dentist is like, you can just like make sure you swish after you take it. And I was like, nah, <laughs> we're not having gray teeth over here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just goes to show really that like it's I, – I feel like I'm walking this weird line between like why is that not regulated more? Like why, why are they not regulating all these supplements more to show – you know, not only could this darken your teeth, but hey, also this probiotic or hey, this vitamin or hey, this mineral or whatever could do X, Y, Z. Um, but then I'm also like, but like we I don't how much how much do I want them regulating that? You know what I mean? It's almost yeah. like there needs to be a certain level of it for safety and awareness. But then if there's too much of it, like we lose out on so much information because it's being controlled by the person selling it to us. And it's like. I don't know. Like, I, yeah. So same thing with probiotics. Like when I first got into this world, I started taking a probiotic that made me feel so sick. My stomach was so upset. I was like, mm -hmm. um, I remember being told that this was going to do a little something to my GI tract, but I was never told that it was going to be like, Hey, you're gonna, you're going to be not feeling good for like a week. <laughs> and I was like, mm. I don't like that. So the one I take now, I don't take all the time because there's also like, um, a probiotic 
you can create almost like a resistive environment if you overtake these supplements too, especially probiotics. Like you can perpetuate so much of the same bacteria in your gut that A, when you stop taking it, your gut's like, whoa, how do I thrive without it? Or B, you're overriding the system that it's naturally trying to implement. So I don't know. All of it's so murky. There's like very minimal regulation on all of this. Like, I mean, they don't really need the FDA's approval for anything. They can kind of make whatever health claims they want to make on the bottle, telling you there's however many billions CFUs, whatever. They can be like, oh, this lowers your risk of blah, 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 blah. And the FDA doesn't consent to any of that. So there's a part of me that's like, okay, that's not fair. But then there's also a part of me that like, okay, but do I want them in this game? I don't know. Um, So anyway. (laughs) you know, the same line you and I have been walking for forever. So a lot of research has been done on probiotics, but much remains to be learned about whether they're helpful and safe for various health conditions, you know, as I always put as the tagline. So I think probiotics, instead of isolating them in this way, as has been suggested, is something that you can get through the fermentation process anyway. So if you're already eating fermented foods, you don't really need an additional probiotic supplement. But if you're not, this is a really cool way to kind of get started and introduce that stuff to your gut. Um, So yeah, speaking of, probiotics are actually very helpful for certain conditions, which have been researched. And this is a rap sheet right here on all the things that probiotics have been researched to help you with. I'm just going to like... And and this is not specifically like probiotics you get in a supplement. This would be like probiotics you find in fermented foods. So it's like kind of the same. Like probiotics are present in both. One is just more controlled than the other. Does that make sense? Like fermented foods, like if you're naturally fermenting something at home, it has probiotics to it. Like they exist in it naturally. It's occurring. If you buy it off of a shelf because you don't yet know how to make it at home or you're like, "Mm, I'm a little weary of that. I don't know if I trust myself yet. You're still buying the probiotic. It's just isolated. So it doesn't have all of the like little helpers and buddies around it to get it through your digestive system which I think is why it made me so sick. Like my body probably needed something to help it process. Um, But even still, you're getting those healthy bacteria one way or the other. So you can kind of choose for yourself what's best. So probiotics as a whole, rap sheet, Mm -hmm. can help with, oh my gosh, GI conditions, antibiotic-associated diarrhea, C. diff infections, constipation, diarrhea caused by cancer treatment. Let's just say diarrhea as a whole, okay? Um, (laughs) Diverticular diseases, um, inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, um, even more diarrhea. Conditions in infants. Wow. Colic. Crazy. Um, Necrotizing enterocolitis, sepsis in infants. Fascinating. Um, All kinds of GI disorders in infants. Dental disorders, dental caries and tooth decay, periodontal diseases or gum disease, Um, allergies, allergic rhinitis, asthma, atopic dermatitis, allergy uh, prevention of other allergies, Um, acne, hepatic encephalopathy, upper respiratory infections, UTIs. I mean, the list literally just keeps going on and on. And I think back to before I got into this world and before I made a sourdough starter and sauerkraut and was drinking all this kombucha and doing all these things. And I was like, my allergies were insane. Like I was, I've talked about this before on here, but like I was so addicted to antihistamines. My, My nose, I had severe allergic rhinitis in seasons that literally nothing is making me allergic to anything. I was just so inflamed nose was constantly runny. I was like, oh, you know, a lot of people have to take allergy medicines every single day. I'm just going to have to be one of those. No, 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 no. My body was simply not getting what it needed to get. And it blows my mind. Now I'm like, 
remember when I couldn't breathe? Like I think back and I'm like, I used to lay down in bed at night and need another pillow because I was like, I need more elevation. Like I literally can't breathe through my nose. I think of all these people with like, you know, all these sleep disorders and allergies and all these things. And I'm like, well, I mean, if our gut's not getting what it needs and it's going to freak out when it's introduced to these things, that should just be normal for it. Mm -hmm. It's so frustrating and so crazy that all of these could just be, you know, helped with something so simple. Um, So super crazy. But and also atopic dermatitis. That was fascinating. Um, So, yeah, studies are limited. Probiotics my opinion, are good for you. There are a lot of studies to suggest all of those things I just mentioned can be helped with the implementation of probiotics. There's different ways to get probiotics. There are included in fermented foods. You can also isolate them and buy them separately. Um, And they're super, super popular. Like a 2012 survey showed that 4 million U.S. adults had used probiotics within the last 30 days of the survey collection. Um, And that probiotics and or prebiotics, which I can mention that too in a second, are the third most commonly used dietary supplement other than vitamins and minerals. Crazy. Um, Their use has more than tenfold increased in the last 25 years. So nuts. It's pretty wild. It's like all the, and like, I mean, the the gut microbiome, I feel like keeps coming up in everything. And the microbiome, like, okay, we always talk about soil, right? I feel like every episode we're like, and in the soil episode, but like we talked about even like the soil microbiome changing, like, and I just think it's interesting that so much research is going into this now and they're like, oh, is this like disease linked to that? Or, you know, these things that are just like having um, like crazy escalation in rates, like in how they're affecting the population. Like, is it related to that? It's pretty cool. Yeah. Especially in like the neuro world. Like I feel like, I mean, when I was in grad school, my thesis was on, um, like I worked with a lot of people with Parkinson's disease. Um, and there was a ton of research being done to suggest like there's a microbiome linked to that. I know that there's been a suggested microbiome linked to Alzheimer's. I mean, all kinds of other neuro diseases and conditions and things like that. Um, so really, really interesting. And I think it, it's so necessary and so important because we're seeing such a rise. I mean, it is it's everywhere, these illnesses and all these things that people are experiencing. And I'm like, if there's a way to make us feel better and to be happier and healthier. Okay, then we all need a sourdough starter. Is is this is the moral of the story? <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna tell you you need to buy something from the store that says prebiotic on it. Probiotic? No, no, no. Give it a minute. You can do this. You can make sauerkraut. But backing it up, actually, prebiotic versus probiotic. That's why I just slipped on that. I was thinking about the difference. They're not the same. Um, Prebiotics are just like non-digestible food components that stimulate the growth of the microorganisms. So prebiotics help the probiotics, I guess. They're like the little helper that's like, okay, come on, get the, get in there. You do your thing. I'm here to support you. Um, and then symbiotics, I guess, is also a part of it, um, which are just products that combine probiotics and prebiotics. So you can take something that's like it's a probiotic and a prebiotic. And you're like, maybe I need both. And actually I can find a lot of studies to, you know, suggest that just taking a prebiotic versus taking a probiotic and a prebiotic combined is not as good for you. So it just kind of goes to show that when you isolate something through this like industrialized method, you might not be getting everything that you need because now they're claiming, oh, you might need a prebiotic and you might need a postbiotic and you might need a, you know, like there's so much jargon. (laughs) 
So. Well, and I feel like there's so much we still don't understand. And, you know, with the microbiome, like, yeah, there's all this like hype about it and they're doing a ton of research, but they're doing a ton of research because we don't really know. So it's, you know, I think they're just kind of like throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks sometimes with these probiotics. Because like you're saying, they're like, oh, actually, we didn't realize that there's like X, Y, and Z variable that we hadn't discovered yet. So now you need this too. And like, oh, it's not really working because we didn't account for this like natural thing that we didn't know existed. And now you need this. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just keeps going on and on. So I mean, moral of the story, if you do want to take a probiotic, like don't use that as a reason to not go see your healthcare providers. Like, ask your doctor. I mean, they probably know as much as the rest of us know, and that's wrong. They know a little bit more. Let's be real here. However, there's not a ton of understanding of all this, but you should still consult with your provider just to make sure, like, you're not taking something that could negatively impact your health. You don't want to experience a bad probiotic. I will tell you that from firsthand. So, and also if you have, (laughs) if you have other health conditions, like just double check and make sure it's okay. Um, and if you don't want to wait to talk to your healthcare provider, you can learn how to do this at home. So that's another way you could take charge of your health. Um, but last little bit on probiotics. fermentation. To clarify, yeah. that's what you're talking about with home fermentation. With home <laughs> fermentation. Yes. Do not go and just start buying things that are not regulated in any way and isolated. You want to make it at home by yourself in a sourdough loaf or sauerkraut or whatever. You know, you could pull a Jessica and just start whipping out yogurt every day. I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet. I have um, one in the Instapot right now or Instant uh, Pot. Yeah. I started it right before we hopped on. I still have not gotten the Instant Pot. Oh, that's upsetting. You need one. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I well, made I fresh ordered cheese one. yesterday, yogurt today. Oh my god, I'm so jealous. I ordered one. It came broken. So sad. I will say, Instant Pot instantly sent me another one. So shout out Instant Pot. Can't wait to get my first pressure cooker. Um, super excited. I will be making yogurt. Um, but yeah. So far as like probiotics go, um, there's a lot of upcoming research to suggest that it could reduce like postmenopausal bone loss. It can contribute to the microbiome in the brain, which I'm like, Oh, I haven't even read about that yet. Um, it could relieve chronic pelvic pain. And then there's new studies to suggest that, um, it could, as we've already seen, do a lot more than we realize with antibiotic associated diarrhea. (laughs) Oh man, the amount of times well, I mean, it makes diarrhea. sense. You're like killing indiscriminately the bacteria, so you're not just killing the bad stuff that's making you sick with an antibiotic. You're also killing some of the good bacteria. Then you end up with like imbalances, overgrowth, all that stuff. Yeah, and I guess if you don't ever replace that good stuff after you've taken a bout of antibiotics, you could probably experience a lot of other health issues too. So, if you've recently taken antibiotics or if you've ever taken antibiotics you know, you're even more inclined to have a lack of diversity in your gut. So it would be a really good time to start looking into sourdough starters. <laughs> so uh, let's take it back. There's those two ways we can ferment the food, either naturally um, by spontaneous or backstopping, or you can use some standardized fermentation method to get the same thing every time you want to make something from fermentation. So, um, you know, which isn't that a great way for big money corporations to give you the same product every single time you pick it up off the shelf, mass produce it to a level that can generate a profit, even though we can make this ourselves with a little education and a lot of practice like our ancestors did in (laughs) our kitchen. So with that said, I found some studies 
you know, as always. Um, basically, this study was looking at kombucha, which Jessica, you uh, used to make. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not- thinking of like doing it again. Um, yeah, like one of the actually one of the first times that my husband like like he we met through friends who's at my house and he just like heard me from the other room talking about like my mother and and he's like who is this weirdo so it's amazing we ended up getting married but I was talking about my kombucha because I kept it in this old like pie safe cabinet thing but I I think it's fun I want to start it again I will say that it the homemade kombucha that I made definitely tasted different than the store-bought. And we were talking about this some before we recorded. And it's like, you know, because you, if you add a bunch of sugar in like the commercial version, it's going to, you know, taste better, obviously. Oh, yeah. That sure always is going to add that nice little palatable punch that you're looking for, you know. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like this, this study, I, I remember actually you telling me when we first were living together years and years ago that you were like, Oh, I'm making kombucha. And I was like, who is this girl? So uh, your husband was not alone in that thought. I was like, this is so weird, but now like looking at it, I'm like, this isn't that hard. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like we actually should be doing this, especially when you look at what goes into kombucha. It's like crazy to me. So this study basically was saying, you know, let's take two different types of kombucha. Let's take, um, a non-alcoholic or a soft kombucha and then take an alcoholic or a hard kombucha out of 39 products um, that make these drastic claims such as live or, you know, contains X amount of probiotics, blah, 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 which is not regulated, as we mentioned before, by the FDI. Um, 39 products were collected. 75% of them included these claims. And this study used nuclear magnetic resonance evaluation of the chemical composition and MR, which I've never heard of before, but essentially, I guess it's just a way for them to look at the microbiota that's inside of the kombucha. Well, their analysis found that the contents and the packages, like we mentioned before, are literally just pulling up numbers and it's not at all what they're saying. None of them. None of them in the study were actually supported. So there were 39 products on the shelf, people, and none of them were supported by the claims on the bottle. That's what is that? That stuff's expensive, too. You're paying a lot for those health benefits that are supposedly in there. (laughs) Yeah. So crazy. So another study I found because I was like, okay, I'm going to keep going down this like weird kombucha rabbit hole. And kombucha isn't even like the fermented food I'm most passionate about. But I was like, there's a lot of good studies done on kombucha and a lot of good studies done on kefir. There's not a lot on other fermented foods, but for whatever reason, those are the ones that kind of get like, you know, all the clout, which I'm fine with because they're delicious. Um, So basically like they were saying in this other study that I looked at is um, while commercial kombuchas can contain good amounts of antioxidants, They wanted to perform a study to compare and contrast the differences between homemade brews and store-bought brews. And I thought that was really cool because, you know, the studies I'd read previously were just comparing a bunch of store-bought kombuchas. They didn't specify this one was fermented at home from a natural process. Um, And then this study basically found that the homemade brews had an average of twice the total amount of antioxidants as the store-bought kombuchas that it was compared to. So... And additionally, like the fermented kombucha, the the homemade batch, which they refer in this study as the fermented kombucha, because again, like store-bought kombucha doesn't have to be guaranteed to be fermented. Crazy mm-hmm. to me. 
um, produces more biologically active acids, which can contribute to the purported benefit. So it's not just those probiotics and CFUs that are touted. It's like there's so many other things that can go into making us healthy that this home batch has that this store-bought batch doesn't have. So really cool to see. Um, so yeah, and even still, they said that some of those acids that they found could have like antibacterial activity so they could prevent harmful bacteria from developing in you and in the drink itself. Kind of cool. Okay. Yeah. So always good to know that like the homemade, you know, has that, I mean, it's fun and satisfying to make it yourself to begin with, but it's always nice to know there's like some added benefit with all the effort that goes into doing things yourself. <laughs> well, yeah. And like I was reading too, I was like talking about pasteurization of kombuchas and stuff. Like even if they naturally ferment, um, which some companies do, they can even pasteurize it thereafter, which essentially is just like killing all the bacteria. And then they'll just put some of like the good stuff back into it. So like you said, if you do it at home, you're controlling that. You're making sure that, you know, this is a raw, unfiltered, good for you has all these like healthy antioxidants, all these other things in it versus like risking it and just purchasing something off the shelf that can make whatever claim it wants to make. So Mm -hmm. super crazy. But yeah, kombucha is actually like blowing up, which yeah, I I guess we all know because we see it in the stores now. But I mean, it, it dates back to like 200 BC in China, but it didn't like actually hit our shelves in North America until 1995. Um, crazy to think about. Kombucha is the number one growing health trend and fermented food source in the world. Crazy. <laughs> Out of everything, literally everything, kombucha. We were like, that's the one. We're going to pick it and it's going to be great. But if you're buying it off the shelf, like, you know, is it actually like the best thing you could be consuming? I don't know. Anyway, it's estimated that kombucha could grow at a compound annual rate of 15%, 15 to 16% in the next six to eight years. So, I mean, it's going to be. Oh, wow. Yeah, if you make a really good homemade kombucha, you know, there's a market out there for you right now. It's super trendy, growing at a rapid rate. Um, well, there's a local company, or at least there was when I was there in like Virginia Beach, and she was like selling it to like yoga studios and stuff. And I'm like, it's a great business idea. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That is a great business idea. And honestly, yeah. like it doesn't seem like it's that hard to make. So if you can make it yourself, but like make it yourself and then just like sell it to your like community and your neighbors and stuff because then you can like keep it at a smaller scale so it maintains it in its integrity versus having mm-hmm. to like you know go out and create this like mass production that tastes the same every time and like strips it of its nutrients so I don't know you know me I get on my I get on my tangents here anyway anyway kombucha <laughs> can be marketed for its health benefits not a lot of studies there but I will say it is more widely studied than other things like kefir is. It can help with weight loss, energy, and immunity, um, the ability to eliminate toxins throughout your diet. It can support gut health, um, boost energy, reduce cravings and inflammation. I mean, it promotes overall health. Um, there's some studies going to show that it can help treat health conditions as well, such as like diabetes, blood pressure, and cancers and stuff. So um, no wonder it's super trendy. I mean, they're really they're really trying to push it. So But like you mentioned before, all great things have their consequences. And when you bought that kombucha from the store, it tasted real sweet. So pay attention to your added sugars and your added salts and all of your fermented foods if you're buying them from the store. I mean, like 24 grams of sugar in your little tiny bottle of kombucha is a little extreme. Um, Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's out there. I was looking at the bottle. So I was like, whoop. 
that's not the one. Don't do it. And it's like that for all fermented foods. Like I bought a sourdough loaf recently at the grocery store because I didn't have time to make my starter active in order to make another loaf. And I was being really lazy instead of just, you know, not eating bread that night. I was like, I want bread. Tons of sugar and salt crammed into that thing. So, and it goes that way for all fermented things. Like just check your labels and be aware that they're going to really try to make it super hyper palatable um, so that you keep buying it more and more and more. Um, But yeah. There is, in fact, a difference between pickling and fermenting. And this is my last little fun spiel before we wrap up to Curiosity Corner because I was like, I don't understand, like, why this is different. And this came about when I tried to pickle um, pickles, cucumbers, for the first time ever. These are two totally different processes. Pickling, essentially, is, like, vinegar-based. It creates a super acidic environment so that nothing can survive good or bad bacteria versus fermentation is like, you know, encouraging the good bacteria to survive. So it helps keep the bad bacteria down. Well, if you want to buy pickled stuff, it's a great way to preserve things yourself, but you can also buy it in the store. So if you like pickles like me and you wanted to go buy some pickles and it actually has food dyes on it to make it look better, don't do it, guys. Mount Olive in Vlasic, turn your jars around. Pickles should not be yellow, okay? (laughs) They should not be yellow. They put yellow five in those food dyes, which can be super detrimental to your health, completely unnecessary. They're trying to do it to make it look, you know, enticing to you so that you eat more and more of it. But they do this to a lot of fermented foods. They'll like add food dyes, all kinds of stuff, and even apparently pickled foods. Um, and quite frankly, you could make a lacto fermented pickle instead of a pickled pickle that could give you that like positive bacteria bump instead of just being like, oh, I'm just going to grab some pickles that have yellow five in them. So read your labels. That's the moral of the story. Okay. This, the sneaky food dyes and like added flavorings and stuff are just wild. Like this is not related to pickling at all, but it's like sneaky dyes or, or sneaky like food things. Right. I was buying butter the other day. Almost all the brands I was turning over had natural flavor added. Oh, yeah. All of that. I haven't checked. Like, I wonder if these, some of these kombuchas, like, how they're flavored. Because, like, when mm-hmm. I'll just, like, put fruit in when I made kombucha, I'm like, it doesn't have that same level of, like, intensity of taste. And I feel like a lot of times the difference is that you're using, like, actual things and not, like, natural, like, flavoring or artificial flavoring. I'm going to have to look into this because I'm really curious now. Like, oh, yeah. But- and- Especially after your artificial natural flavors episode, I've been even more aware because I'm like, ah, we don't know what this is. We don't really know yeah. what it is. We don't know what it does to us. And also, butter is butter. Why do I need a natural flavor in there? It tastes like butter. Like, are you telling me that it tasted like something different or nothing before? Like, it should literally just be cream and salt mm-hmm. if you want it salted. Uh, yeah, it's so frustrating. Um, and it's like this with everything. Like, you know, read your labels, look at the back if you want to buy it from the store. I get it. Not all of us. That's the whole point of this podcast is that we are not out here with a full-blown farm and homestead making everything from scratch. But can we make a lot from scratch? Of course we can. And when we can't, we need to be knowledgeable consumers when we go to the store. What should I be buying? Read your labels. There should not be 24 yeah. Sugar. There should not be food dyes. There should not be, and I'm sorry, artificial flavors. I'm like, mm, do we need it in there? Probably not. Even natural flavors, we don't know what that is. So it's like, if you can steer clear of it, it's better to steer clear of it if it's possible. So, moral of the story fermentation is fun. 
There are so <laughs> many benefits, guys. Standard standardization of this will not give you the same benefits. And while risky, learning to do this at home is an ancient practice and a privilege that we should all learn. My health journey wouldn't have been the same without it. I love fermented foods. They're delicious. I feel like a completely different person because of them. So I'm about to get everybody hooked on a starter. And if anything, I think everybody should start with like sauerkraut. To me, that was like the easiest fermented food I've ever made before ever. It took like mm-hmm. 20 minutes and it was delicious. So. With that, Jessica, we're going into Curiosity Corner. Tell us what made you curious this week. All righty. Well, I haven't added any new kitchen skills or anything this week, but I've been just kind of like going into some like, I don't know, wild news stories, I guess has been what I, and I think we'll be doing some more like in-depth like episodes about some of this in the future. So I'm going to keep it kind of like brief, some little like teasers, but I was actually, so it all started because I was reading a, like, just like a fiction book, like one of the Reese Witherspoon gift, uh, book club books, which I normally love, uh, the house in the pines in case you're wondering. But anyways, there's like this like random reference to the, this like coup essentially that was like backed by the United States and South America in support of like the United Fruit Company. So, and I was like, oh yeah, I remember hearing about this. Let me start looking into this. And um, essentially like the, like a, a U.S. owned company was, you know, creating like running bananas essentially in South America. And then there was a, a leadership change in one of these countries and they were trying to like take the land back for the people essentially is what I found so far. And the United Fruit Company was like, absolutely not like our profits, man. And there was supposedly like a backed, like a US backed overthrow of that leader and like power change, like all over bananas. And then that got me looking into like the child labor that goes into bananas. I started going down like this whole like deforestation of the Amazon for illegal cattle ranching, a lot of which supposedly is getting exported to the United States. Like it gets, yeah, it's like wild, like the cartel and avocados, like all kinds of stuff. So I'm not going to get too much into it because I'm still in the early stages of research. Oh, also like forced labor with Chinese seafood. All right. So you need to stay tuned because we're going to be delving into some of this some more in future episodes. Um, But that's really where my curiosity has been directed this week. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. I I love a good controversy and I can always count on you to bring it to the forefront. Um, (laughs) If you guys haven't seen Jessica's video about lead, purposeful lead added to applesauce pouches recently that was reported possibly as purposeful by the FDA. Um, she has a way of digging these things up. So <laughs> if you didn't see it, like the FDA is still investigating, but there is this recall on a bunch of fruit pouches, which, you know, obviously tons of kids and toddlers are eating. Um, and a bunch of the, um, a number of kids, the number keeps rising. The, uh, the originally they were saying like 63, 64. I saw a higher number more recently. I don't remember what it was though, but of kids that have, um, had like lead poisoning from eating these pouches. And I think it's just a perfect example of the, like the, essentially the risk we take because of like our convoluted supply chain, because of how many steps, places there are for breakdown to happen for like nefarious activity to happen that we're importing so many things. So all three of these companies that got recalled that were part of the recall manufactured at the same processing plant in Ecuador. 
And then they were sourcing cinnamon from another company, which they think is where the contamination occurred. So that's the current working theory they're investigating. And they've tested the cinnamon and it did contain high levels of lead, like astoundingly high compared to like the legal cutoffs. Um, and apparently, and I was reading like a lot of articles about this. They were quoting this, uh, I think she was the head of the New Jersey poison control. And she was like, yeah, we get a couple cases a month of like lead a contamination month. with spices. Yeah. And like, if you start looking into recall lists, which are, you can find them online, they have these import alerts essentially that they put out. Um, and like the spices that are like cut with other things, contaminated, like they'll mix like things that are sold by weight, like spices, they'll cut them with like lead and heavy metals to increase the weight and profit. So I, I can't. You always like I I've read that article. I remember sending it to you and you'd be like, "What?" And then you'd run with it and you find these things that I'm like, "I I don't understand how you just dug all the way down into all of that information." Which I'm so glad you do because quite frankly, I don't think any of us would have been able to find all of the information that you were able to, and it gives me such a clear picture of something that already scared me from the beginning. But it just goes to show <laughs> that this is all so convoluted, you know? Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's horrifying the things. Did we I don't I don't know if we talked about this before. Do we have we did we talk about the juice contamination? Yeah, we did. We did on the honey episode, I'm pretty sure. So Probably. I'm not gonna go into that. Yeah, I won't repeat that then and bore you guys. But if you haven't looked look valley processing juice contamination, it's disgusting. If I didn't talk about it, but I'm pretty sure I did. So um yeah, I will I will go to YouTube. On the pouches, though, from like a child development perspective, pouches in general, just like they've become such like an efficiency thing. And I understand like I I'm currently not a parent. I I work with kids. I love children and I have spent a lot of time with them. And I am an OT, so I definitely understand their occupations, thereby feeding. But I will say from a child development perspective, pouches can be pretty detrimental to the entirety of the feeding process. So if that alone, the lead, you know, wasn't enough for you to be like, oh gosh, let's get rid of the pouches. You can make purees yourself at home. Like take whatever it is you're eating, throw it in a blender because these pouches are made with so many additives. And even if you're like, oh, well, I get the organic sugar-free kind, they are making that pouch to taste exactly the same every time your child eats it, which is why later they end up having so many food aversions to so many other things because it's a novel thing. Like strawberries and stuff shouldn't always taste sweet. A lot of times they're tart or tangy or bitter or whatever. So just pouches in general, I feel like I would love a world where we got away from that, you know, where we're not just relying on them making it safe without the lead and stuff, but it's like, you know, because I had a friend recently who was like, you know, we use pouches because they're easy, especially when we're moving and everyone's so busy. And like, it's so hard for parents to like really get their kid to like sit down and have like a good meal. And I get that too. And she was like, it's hard. And she was like, what about pouches if I put it on a spoon? So at least the kid's using their fine motor skills to feed themselves. And I was mm -hmm. like, I actually used to recommend that kind of thing too. But like more and more research is pointing to the fact that it's like straight up the pouch itself, you know, because that you know, you're essentially getting a kid to like suck on a pouch. So their oral motor skills could decline from that. And then also, you know, spoon and they're, you're removing their ability to like learn how to use their hands, whatever. But 
in addition to that, then you don't talk about like all the additives, all the things that they're putting in it, the hyperpalatability, the expectancy. And I'm just like, man, dude, you don't even look at that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden one day they're like, and it's poison with lead. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not pro pouch. I'm not pro pouch. I think we should just get rid of the pouches in general, as we've seen, they have lead anyway, and they're just not great. You know, I think there's just so many other things you could do. So take your foods, blend them up, puree them, whatever, store them, freeze them for later, and then make your own little baby jars or whatever you need to do because they're so risky. There's so many risks involved in this kind of stuff. So, I mean, I will say we, we're not generally pouch people. <laughs> I just like the alliteration there, but we, I, I will use them for travel. So like if we're out like hiking, we're on vacation, if we're going to be on a plane where I can't bring what I made because it's not going to be like shelf stable, that's where I like them. And I think they are helpful, obviously not if they've been recalled and contaminated with lead. Um, but in our day to day, like I made, um, all like our baby food, stuff like that. And I would say even easier than the blender, which obviously the blender is like you're super economical. You already, most people already own one, throw it in the blender. You could totally do that. What I like, if you want to make it like even easier and kind of have like an added thing on your registry, if you will, uh, the, uh, I use the, I'm probably going to butcher it. It's like Bayaba, B-E with an accent, Egu, A-B-A, uh, the Bayaba baby cook, I think is what it's, and I got like the glass one. So you're not doing any like heat with plastic. Um, but essentially it's like a steamer and a pureeer. So you have this like one glass container that you chop up like your fruits and veggies in, and then you steam it in there and then you dump it out of like the steamer, the metal steamer basket into that same glass jar and it purees it. And it made like batch cooking tons of baby food, super easy. And then you can just buy the little glass jars and freeze it. So I would agree. It's super. And they even sell like, um, refillable pouches. Now I have some of those too. So it's, it's shaped exactly, which I know you're not pro pouch, but it is shaped exactly like the little pouches and you can just clean them out and reuse them and put your own purees. So I would second that it's super easy to do it yourself. And then, you know, what's going in it. Yeah, definitely. And no, I like that you said that because it it gives that parent perspective, which it's so true. Like, I mean, there's we live in a world today of such like efficiency and expediency that there are going to be times where it's you're not able to eat in the way that you wish you could. I mean, it's just like we've created a society around that idea, you know, so, you know, every now and then when you're having to go on a flight, which how often are you doing that? Or you're going on a hike for a long period of time, which, again, how often are you doing that? Yeah, if you need to use a pouch in order for your child to get like the food or the veggie intake that they need, 100% do it, go for it. And then also explore all these other preservation methods that we have that we've had for, you know, years and years like dehydration or drying or fermenting or like all these other things that you could do. Um, But also, you know, make sure you check the safety of it, especially with kids. There were a lot of things I read when we were doing this episode about like fermentation and safety with children. It's kind of like back in our um, previous episode when we were talking about like with sugars and like babies and honey and stuff. Um, It's like important to make sure that that consideration is also okay for your child too. So, um, but that most of the time they can eat what you can eat. So if that's possible and you're able to do it, definitely do it. But I love that you just gave that steamer and the puree 
thing because I've never heard of that before. And I'm constantly like encouraging people like mm-hmm. if you need to make even for like pets and stuff, like I think there's a lot of people who are really trying to incorporate foods from their kitchen to give to their animals, not just their kids. Um, and I think like something like that might be a bigger investment up front, but could eventually save you a lot in the long run. Um, not just with like picky eating for your kids, but also also like, you know, clarity of what's going into your foods and stuff. So I'm definitely well, going to put that one in the show notes. Store-bought baby food's not cheap. No. <laughs> so it's like in the long run, I think probably way cheaper to buy the – I mean, you could do it cheaper. You could just use like a glass blender, right? But for me, it was worth it to have something that made it easy. Like there's less cleaning. There's less dishes. It's all like – it's one-stop shop. I can just like push the button and it goes. Like, And I think – because there's so much that we're trying to do every day. And especially when you're like a new parent, like, and you're dealing with like trying to take care of your baby at the same time, having mm-hmm. something that makes it easier. It's nice. Yeah. If it's in the budget, you know, or on the registry. So, so it can be in somebody else's budget. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Definitely going to put that in the show notes because I think that's, that's great. I think definitely a good recommendation for all of us to try and use. So other than that, I mean, I'm always curious about couches. But um, (laughs) this week for like Curiosity Corner, I've been reading. I cannot read as fast as you, Jessica. But um, we started reading simultaneously um, a book called Song of the South, which is like incredible. I It's really taking me a while to get through it because there's so much information and I'm trying to do my due diligence and take my time reading it. Um, And also there's like a lot that's really heavy to read. Uh, Super depressing. Chelsea didn't warn me. She's just like, read this book. And yes, it's dense, first of all. But also like I was crying like the first chapter. It's so sad. I mean, it's because they just like bring it, it talks about your cells essentially is what the book talks about. And it brings the doctor who wrote it brings in like real life cases and patients that he worked with to give you a perspective of what kind of process of the cell he's talking about. And it's like the really first emotional. page. Yeah, the first page is like, here's this wonderful man. Second page. Oh, he's dead now. You know, know. next page. Here's Boiler a child alert. with a rare form of cancer. Oh, now they're in the ICU. Like, oh my gosh. Like, yeah, you know, I know. But you learn so much. And I really feel like if we can make it to the end, there's a lot of it that we could apply to all of this information too. Like, I, I really am going to try. But you're right. I I was like, you know, this is a lot. And Jessica was like, I'm taking a break. And I was like, you know what? I'll take a break too. So I thought I should read Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, which is also devastating. I mean, it is not a break at all. I was like... I'm gonna have to go pick up like a Danielle Steele book or something because I can't get away. Well, yeah, I went for beach romance reads for my break. <laughs> See, you uh, you were wise. I totally should have done that. And I'm gonna take a break from Silent Spring now too. I'm doing it on an audiobook, and I'm like, I I'm like walking through the grocery store, like crying. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Okay, but I want to read it. I think it's important, so I'm gonna do my best. Um, but those are. I feel me- like. I feel like nonfiction on audiobooks sometimes is hard too because I've tried to listen to some and I'm like. Oh, but I need to reread that because I didn't quite catch that statistic. And like, same, same. I I already started it there though. So I was like, and there were times I've had to rewind it to hear something over and over again, which I don't like because then it keeps me kind of tied to my phone. Um, Mm -hmm. And also Silent Spring, I feel like is kind of a classic um, so far as like environmentalism goes. So I'm probably going to end up just buying a copy anyway. Um, 
which I should do and then start a different book to kind of give me a break. So in the meantime, but, um, other than that, like other than reading those incredible books that are going to take me a minute to get through, I bought non-toxic toilet paper this week. Oh yes. I saw that in the story. Do tell. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's plant paper which is chlorine and dye free, which apparently they bleach your toilet paper. Never knew that. Terrifying. We did our endocrine disrupting chemical episode and I was like, whenever I run out of something, I'm now going to look into it and then find a good replacement. We ran out of toilet paper and I was like, oh no, this is awful. (laughs) What goes into our toilet paper, like all kinds of plastics and stuff. And I was like, ah, yes, all kinds of stuff. Um, And I mean, you're like, wiping your like reproductive areas with that. So I was like, you know, you talk so much about endocrine disrupting chemicals and I'm like directly applying it to those areas. I'm like, this doesn't really, this seems kind of counterintuitive. So I did some research on toilet paper. Um, and I found this brand plant paper, no affiliation with them at all. Definitely recommend it's like, I think it's like bamboo made. It's non-dyed. Mm-hmm. So it comes in this almost like beige color, which I was a little thrown by at first. Um, and it's super cute. It comes, it's like zero waste. It comes in a mm-hmm. um, cardboard box. And then each of them are like individually packaged inside in little groupings to make sure they don't get like wet or whatever. Um, and it's really good toilet paper. Really good. It has okay, the approval and everything. <laughs> Cause I've tried like some of the more like eco ones in the past when I was going at it from more of like a zero waste standpoint and it was like a little tissue papery and I was like, so yeah, my, my experience in the past have been like septic safe. They're the ones that are like mostly biodegradable and stuff. Um, or yes, they are biodegradable, but they don't have a lot of the other things in them. Um, it, it like fell apart like the second it got wet and I was like, this is kind of gross. So I was a little nervous. Um, and this one's like, it does kind of throw you because when you use it, like it's, it's a beige color. So it's not like the crystal pristine white color. And you're like, Ooh, like it's like disintegrating in front of me. It turns like this dark color and you're like, this is super weird. But after using it a couple of times, I'm like, I feel no difference. I love to know that it's clean. Um, if anything, like it's kind of cool because one side of it, it has like a grippy texture to it and the other side super smooth. So, you know, you have different options there so far as gripping on your hand and then the smooth portion so that you're not giving yourself a rash. I was like, this is great. They really thought this through. Is it super expensive? I ordered a box for $90 that came with 30 rolls of toilet paper. Oh, my God. Yeah, which to me, I we will probably not buy toilet paper again for at least six months. That's and like so really I, expensive though. Oof. Okay, but let's compare 30 rolls. When I go to the store, it gives me like nine rolls, usually nine to 12 rolls of toilet paper. And that usually costs about $15. So oh, really? I, oh, yeah. Toilet paper is expensive. Have you checked prices on that recently? I mean, it's it's no, it's rough. Yeah, I have no idea. I just it's rough. like scan comparing when I'm in the store, but I haven't like filed that away for how much it is. Yeah, it's very expensive, which is why I got very upset because I was like, I'm not even saving money. Like, OK, cool. Let me commit to like this chlorine bleach plastic garbage that won't break down in my environment and save no, no, no. I wasn't even doing that. And even like the marginality of it, it wasn't enough for me to like continue to be like, this is not good for me. So yeah, it was like 90 bucks for a box of I think I got 30. I might've gotten more than that. And I was like, I'm not going to, it got shipped straight to my door. 
individually packaged, zero waste. I was like, I'm not going to have to buy toilet paper again for a very significant amount of time. So to me, it was worth it because it came straight to me. I I was like, okay, this is better for me. Now, am I going to keep looking and compare this to other natural toilet papers? For sure. Um, Because I would love to find like, you know, the one that I'm like, it's David's toothpaste all over again, never changing this again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I'll keep everyone updated on the plant paper. Sounds good. Well, do we have anything else for the folks today? I think that's it. That's all, that's all I got. All righty. Well, then, Chelsea, tell everybody where they can find us. Hey, guys. We wanted to take a moment to thank everyone for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and feedback. We encourage you to reach out with any suggestions for future topics, with questions, or requests for clarifications. If you're enjoying the podcast, give us a rate and a review. If you're not enjoying it, give us your feedback, but maybe skip the review. Give us a follow on Instagram at the hand that feeds us or send us an email at hand that feeds us at gmail.com and keep tuning in. You can listen to us wherever you find your podcasts.